welcome to another episode of the Yale Women's Leadership Initiatives podcast series, Women X of Yale, a series dedicated to telling the stories of past and current Women X students, their experiences of struggle, of identity, and of empowerment on campus and beyond. My name is Julia, the Communications Director of WLI. In our second episode, we spoke with Jen Huang and Ananya Katru, WLI's co-presidents, about the creation of Remembering 50, a book WLI published in honor of 50 years of co-education at Yale College and 150 years of co-education at Yale University. In this episode, and in coming episodes, we invite a number of the book's contributors to our podcast to share excerpts from and insights about their essays and their experiences at Yale. Today, we bring to you co-president Jen Huang in conversation with contributor Amy Rubin, who will introduce herself and read her essay, Let It Rain. Let It Rain by Amy D. Rubin, Yale School of Music, Masters in Music, 1976. For Frank, Chester, Dan, and the rest of the gang. I didn't actually apply to the graduate composers program at the Yale School of Music. I entered as a pianist, learned at orientation that Professor Frank Lewin would be teaching film scoring, and given my background in composing for theater, I eagerly signed up. With Frank's painstaking guidance, I composed a 10-minute jazz-infused score and after screening it, the faculty permitted me to change majors. I was admitted into Yale's master's program in composition, a class of seven young men and now me. It was 1974. Frank became my official mentor and said that the time for women composers to be recognized had finally arrived. Despite his optimism and encouragement, I was scared My mom reminded me that a woman could do anything, especially her daughter. Would my classmates accept me even if I didn't have any facial hair? As a composer, I worked alone, but had ample time to hang out at Naples, the school hangout, where shouts of extra cheese constantly rang through the air. My guys and I talked about art, literature, politics, philosophy, and relationships over pizza and beer. Frequently, we were joined by our composition professors, whom we called by their first names, Yehudi, Bob, David, all men. Naples was a welcomed escape from the routine meals at the Hall of Graduate Studies, where a group of male brass players sat together and loudly rated each woman's set of breasts as she gathered her silverware and tray. Clearly, not everyone was ready to embrace feminism. Many individuals and institutions would be stuck in archaic sexist patterns for decades, um, closing their minds and ears to Bob Dylan's The Times They Are a Changing and Robin Morgan's Sisterhood is Powerful. Slowly, I let my guard down and became vulnerable. I confessed to Dan that I thought I would faint from anxiety every time I entered the electronic music studio. 
A class in this new genre of sound was required for all composition majors, and I was terrified that I would never be able to manage the endless snake-like cables crisscrossed in all directions. I'll be forever grateful for the long nights he guided me through my final project so that I could complete my degree. Over time, I began to take the risk of sharing the real me and finding out more about the real them. I revealed to Chester that the sexual liberation movement sweeping across America was carrying me in its wake. I told him that I was attracted to both women and men, and in exchange, he opened up to me about his male partner. These were times when many of us realized that we were carrying male-female stereotypes that we needed to shed. Our course, Conducting for Composers, with its challenging assignments, made all of us tremble, regardless of estrogen or testosterone. Our strategy was to prepare the challenging assignments together, support each other in class, and debrief over beers at Naples when the seminar was over. I was surprised to witness fear and vulnerability in my male classmates, as I had presumed that those feelings were reserved for women. That autumn, our class was given the gift of a retreat at Gale's summer home, Norfolk a rustic estate located in Litchfield, Connecticut. There seemed to be some concern by the administration about my sleeping in the same area as the male students. Chester had a solution. Let's pose as man and wife when the caretaker checks it in and then we'll figure out the rest. He appeared later with rings he had purchased out of a candy machine. We said, I do in unison and hugged. There was quite a lot of unsettling teasing from my classmates about this false marriage, as well as our upcoming trip. Amy, I assume you'll be cooking for us. Amy, would you mind shopping for dinner? Amy, I hope you're a good housekeeper. I responded with the most blatantly dark scowls I could deliver. They got the point and the teasing stopped. But I began to worry. Maybe they were sexist, and I had just chosen not to notice. Maybe my guys were not the guys I thought they were. Our first afternoon at the retreat, we took a hike up to Mount Tom State Park's lookout tower. It was a magical dome-shaped spot with unobstructed views in all directions of the landscape, ablaze with reds, yellows, purples, the visual miracle of autumn in New England. I was fascinated by the shapes of peaks rising, falling, and converging in the distance. Why don't we create a group, vocal piece, following the contours of the mountains? I demonstrated singing, shaping my improvised melody to rise and fall as I gazed out into the horizon and followed its arc. My guys joined me with their tenor and bass voices. Soon, we shared ideas about rhythm, pitch sets, and form, because 
that's what composers do. Reader alert, please remember that this was the 1970s. Admittedly, we had smoked some marijuana. My compositional plan seemed fantastic, and the results as we began to sing seemed nothing short of a masterpiece. One that, sadly, we would never remember. And then it began to rain. First a drizzle, and then a downpour. We hurried back to the estate and dried off. There was only one single bedroom, and it was clear that I, the only woman, should claim it, especially since I felt a cold coming on. The following morning, I awoke to a headache and hacking cough. I had overslept. It was almost noon. Soon, there was a knock on my door, and my classmates entered, each carrying a breakfast offering of fruit and muffins wrapped in festive cloth napkins. With tenderness, they asked, Amy, how are you feeling? As they sat around my bedside, we leisurely sipped our coffee and listened to the patter of raindrops as they trickled along the roof. Raindrops come in a variety of many shapes and sizes. So did we. I was no longer an outsider, but a member of a larger group called us. We watched the drops as they flowed together to become rain. About 20 years later, I was given the Distinguished Alumni Award after being nominated by my mentor, Frank Lewin, who got me into the program so many years before, and in the decades that followed, hired me as a conductor, arranger, and assistant for his projects. At the formal lunch, I was presented with a plaque which I handed to my mother. I was astonished at her frown. What's wrong, mom? She looked down at the plaque. Have you read this? You should. Here's what it said. This is awarded to Amy Rubin for his service to the field of music. Thank you so much for sharing and reading your story. So we're going to move on to the interview portion of this podcast episode. To start off, could you please briefly introduce yourself? I've worked as a professor, uh, had an amazing time as a Fulbright scholar in Ghana where I researched rhythmic ambiguity and taught in the Sub-Saharan Conservatory and produced festivals and had a fusion ensemble. And since that, um, I've had many wonderful collaborations. I'm currently in a trio of violin, clarinet, and piano where we take notated music and extend it through improvisation. Uh, my career as a composer has been all over the place, meaning quite eclectic. I've written concert music, theater music, film scores, music for jazz ensembles. I'm working on a new project now that will be heard uh, in Seattle through the Wayward Music Series in November. They'll be streaming that. I also do a fairly unique series of what I call informances, live performance mixed, mixed with lecture uh, and audience participation and multimedia. 
And I have about 20 of these, which I've done all over Washington and also internationally. And one of them is actually on female composers, which I call our buried treasures. I'm also a writer. I'm very excited to have this story featured in the Yale Anthology. I also have another piece that will be published um, in, in an anthology called Generations Aging with Pride, uh, Unmuted. And uh, that story is called Blood Sisters and will be coming out, as I said, in an anthology form. And I also am the producer and composer and director of the audiobook version of it. So uh, I continue to work with different ways of telling stories, whether through music, through words, or a combination. That's really exciting. Sounds like you have a lot of really cool projects coming up. So going a little bit more into your piece, you mentioned that you entered Yale intending to be a pianist, and then you changed your mind after taking a class in film scoring. So I'm curious as to what it was either in that class or otherwise that motivated you to want to become a composer instead? It's a really good question. I actually was composing probably from the time I was seven. So um, composing was not new, but taking it very seriously was uh, a, a new way of thinking. Yale was very nice to me. They were very, very flexible. Like many young people, I had different ideas, oh, Monday from Wednesday to Friday about what I wanted to do with my life and what a good fit was. And uh, I would have to say that the professors were very patient with me, letting me do, you know, piano and chamber music and improvisation and transcription studies and then evolve into, yes, this is finally what I think I want to stick with, which is uh, writing dramatic music. So I had been actually working um, in theater from the time I was 15 as a music director, working professionally. And uh, when I went to college, which was Cornell, I was actually uh, on the staff of the theater department as their music director and as their resident composer. So I was doing that on the side, but always focusing on the piano. And so I do believe a lot in the magic of synchronicity that Frank Lewin was giving this film scoring class. I had no idea that this was happening at Yale and we had orientation and there he appeared um, dressed differently from others. Everybody else was very casual and he had a very formal business suit on, uh, not very nice tie. And it was clear that he was very, very serious about this. And I thought, well, I'm, that's the first thing I'm signing up for because I've written so much for theater, but never for film and why, why wouldn't I? And he became an, an amazing mentor to me and also quite honestly, a kind of a surrogate father figure. He always called me his fourth daughter. And I think it's of interest that two of his daughters are Yaleys and that he was a Yaley too. Um, Frank studied with Hindemith uh, when he was at Yale and had some funny stories about things that Hindemith said to him. So he was inspirational and also gave so generously and endlessly of his time that 
it's a model for me with my students. They're, they're surprised that they get invited to stay for dinner. And I think that's, um, that's the way, that's, that's the way to really connect is to connect in, in a large scale form with somebody's, you know, their character, their personality, and of course their musicianship. That's awesome. And it's a really inspiring story and theme that we've seen throughout a lot of pieces is that a lot of young women in particular were really inspired by certain professors, certain people in leadership at Yale to go and pursue something that they otherwise wouldn't have known about or otherwise wouldn't have pursued. So it's always really great to hear that you had so much support while you were at Yale. These relationships, if you're lucky, will last a lifetime. I mean, I returned to Yale, oh gosh, it must have been 20 something years ago because Frank finally mounted his opera, something he had written for 20 years at Yale School of Music and I was his assistant on, on that project and uh, a lifelong friendship uh, and mentorship and totally the most valuable experience one can have. One other thing that was really important about your story was that it centered around your friendships with the men in the same program as you. So what was it like meeting them initially and how did those friendships form from there? What also motivated you to gradually open up to them and them to you? Majoring in composition and majoring in piano could not be more opposite in terms of the culture surrounding the community. So, the piano department, I had some friends in the piano department, but by and large, uh, there was a sense of competition and there was a sense of uh, judgment, I think. And in composition, it's more collegial because there's really nothing to compete, compete with. We're all trying to find our musical voices and Chester's voice is gonna be different from Dan's voice, is gonna be different from my voice. So I think there's much more curiosity about what other people are doing. Uh, genuine interest, uh, genuine, oh, I'd love to look at that. Oh, you wanna see this too? And we would have that relationship with our composition professors as well, um, of a lot of really relaxed, interpersonal conversation time. And so, as I said, that was a kind of an evolution, but it was, it was the style of getting together. And the Norfolk experience that I wrote about, that was a retreat where we were all having meals together and listening to music, students and faculty, and sort of cohabiting. So that also, I think, is really kind of a, a great model of uh, moving the learning connecting experience out of the classroom and extending it into Naples pizza and, uh, and Norfolk. Um, yeah, and then over time you get to meet people's partners and um, get to hear about their aspirations. A lot of bonding really did take place. It's very funny, I don't, and it's, it's, it's funny that I'm talking about it now. Uh, Arthur Weisberg, who was a very fine conductor and also a, um, he played trombone and uh, also was a composer, he taught this co course called composing, uh, conducting for composers. 
and it was hair-raisingly terrifying. I mean, even if you prepared, somehow you were not prepared. Uh, the, it was very, very demanding. And it, we would all, each of us would fall apart in class. And, you know, we did discuss strategies about how we were going to cope. And it happened every time anyway. So then, you know, we, then we go to Naples afterwards and, and have a beer. So I think um, that Arthur's intention was probably not to create a, the composer's community. But that was actually what happened was that we, we, we had a bond together to pr protect ourselves and, and pr protect each other. It did help us bond together, um, our mutual anxieties. In your story, you also mentioned that during the retreat, there was some unsettling teasing from your classmates. Did that happen pretty often? Like how often did you hear those remarks during your time at Yale and how would you usually respond? Well, I think what it was, was that we were all going to play house. You know, we were all in close quarters. And the idea of when you're playing house, what kind of role are you expecting to take on? So they seem to revert to this, oh, there's the girl. So, oh, get the girl an apron. Oh, and I said, no, 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 I'm not that kind of girl. You know, so what the story, for me really is about is role reversal where all the teasing was putting me in in that role but what actually transpired during that weekend was role reversal because i got sick and they were the ones who put on the aprons and, and made me breakfast in bed and uh, i thought that was really very very sweet uh, so no um i was not disparaged and um i felt i felt welcomed supported helped, liked. I think we all did that for each other, regardless of, you know, man, woman, etc. That's great to hear that you are all so supportive of each other. One other thing you spoke about in your piece was your sexuality and the sexual liberation movement in America at the time. How would you say that movement as well as revealing your own sexuality affected your Yale experience? And what was the general climate and conversation at Yale like surrounding sexuality while you were there? From my perspective, it was not an open place at all. It surprised me that after graduating, I would learn, oh, you mean, oh, those people were gay or these people were that or, I think people, from my experience, were probably fearful, timid, closeted, and um, kept a very low profile. It definitely, things have, are really, really, really different now. Um, I think, ironically, I went to Cornell and the Cornell gay and lesbian scene was way more visible. And that was actually earlier. That was 1969 to 1973 for me. And I remember there was a, a group that had a lot of visibility. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's that in graduate school, there's a lot, you're not going to as many classes or it's, it's not such a mainstreamed experience. You're focusing on um, your major and you're focusing on your individual work and um you are you're perhaps are 
less part of a community um, than you would be as an undergraduate now. But the but time is really, really different now. I mean, um, and also I do want to say a little bit about my experiences after Yale, just in terms of um, facing sexism, because uh, that was a, a reality as, as well. And One thing that you mentioned at the beginning of your piece was that music and composing in particular was a very male-dominated field at the time. So what were some challenges that you faced after Yale and how did you overcome them? Did your experiences at Yale help prepare you for them? Well, one thing that Yale did um, for us just in general in terms of <clears throat> life after Yale was I remember being given a number of phone numbers of successful composer alumni. I don't know if they do that still, but uh, someone I worked for and became a lifelong friend was on that list. Uh, his name is Richard Peasley, and he was uh, also uh, a Yale graduate composer. Wonderful, wonderful man. I worked for him as a music director for a number of years, and he became we became like family members. I did a lot of recording for him. We had an uh, an improvising band. He was one of the few people who started um, creating pre-recorded soundtracks that we played against live. Um, and he was an important musical force for me because he was very courageous with his eclecticism. Uh, he embraced jazz, rock and roll, new music, and felt fine about mixing them together, which is something that I do. Um, so meeting him was just great and life-changing. Uh, as I said, I continued to work with Frank and Frank got me work um, as his assistant and sometimes just as uh, me as an independent conductor or composer. So one time Frank was scoring um, a TV show uh, that he, as he did a lot of television uh, in addition to multimedia and opera. And so he was scoring the the main sequences and then there were some smaller sequences that were sort of country music-ish. So Frank did me the great and surprising honor of hiring me to compose cues for an ABC TV special that he was working on and this part had to do with country music and I was able to hire some great musicians and write sort of in a country music style. And he also permitted me to conduct and produce the session. I was, as you can imagine, very nervous. And as I was preparing right in the space, a man I had not been introduced to walked over to me and handed me a menu, a restaurant menu. And he said, um, hi, dear, uh, I'd like you to start ordering out lunch for all of the musicians. And um, I handed him the menu back and I said, uh, actually, I'm the composer and conductor for the next session. And my suggestion is that you get a piece of paper and pass it around and see what people like. Uh, I, I'll see you later. So, uh, and he, this man kept showing up at all of my sessions and it was just like, oh my God, I, Oh my God, how to get rid of him. And he, he stuck, he stuck with this apron thing. He kept saying to me, oh yes, 
Amy Rubin, I remember you. I can't wait to see you cooking in my kitchen. That was as blatant as the sexism would get uh, done under the guise of humor, but not really. So uh, there, were, there were episodes like that, but basically I, my experience, I was the pianist and assistant music director for Three Penny Opera at Lincoln Center. I was the only woman there and the guys always were wonderful. They were, we were all, I had no attitudes or nothing from anyone. I've been frequently uh, the only woman in academia in my department and I've never had really any problem with that. So I guess I, I was raised to be, to put blinders on and just kind of focus on the work and presume that everybody will, will behave well. And um, fortunately that has been true 95% of the time. And, uh, but there are those 5% of people who remain needing education. I do a presentation on women composers and statistically, of course, we know that women do not have the same opportunities yet as men. Uh, one of the issues for women composers who are dead is that there is nobody to rally for them, nobody to rally for their music. At least if you're alive, you can still work on promotion. But most of us would rather work on the work, not the promotion of the work. My last question for you is, what does Remembering 50 mean to you? There used to be a cigarette ad and the words were, You've come a long way, baby, to get to where you got to today. You've got your own cigarette now, baby. You've come a long, long way. We've come a long way, and I'm excited to read that voyage from where it started those years back to where it is now, and, and hear people's struggles, and hear people's achievements, and hear what they remember as the most important times in their lives, which is probably, you know, when you're those, those decades of, of uh, college and graduate school. So I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out what happened. And I think it's also, it's a possibility of creating a larger community, um, finding out who all of these women are and where they are and what they're doing, it can only lead to good things. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast today and discuss your story and experiences. Well, thank you so much. And I, I can't wait for the launch. I can't wait to read the stories and uh, wish you energy, which you clearly have. Uh, and really great times going back to Yale uh, in person. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Remembering 50 will be available for purchase in early September, September 10th to be exact, on our website, yalewli.org backslash remembering-50. On September 10th, WLI will be hosting a virtual book launch. This event will highlight our book contributors and feature book readings, a Q&A session, and videos from WomenX organizations at Yale College. 
A link to a registration form for the event can be found on the Remembering 50 page of our website. The Women X of Yale is created by the Yale Women's Leadership Initiative. Stay in touch with WLI by liking us on Facebook at Women's Leadership Initiative at Yale and following us on Instagram at YaleWLI. That's it for this episode of The Women X of Yale. I'm Jen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.